The scripture reading for tonight's sermon is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 5. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Before I pray, I just want to thank you all for your graciousness and kindness to us as we've had to move from a Sunday or Saturday night to Sunday night and uh, back to Saturday next week. I really appreciate the kindness that you've shown to us. It's a weird time, and so thank you. For your cooperation with things. So with that, let's pray for tonight's message and let's uh, have expectant hearts that the Lord means to speak to us tonight. Our God and Father, you are very great and you are greatly to be praised. Your greatness, Father, is actually inconceivable. When I think sometimes just about the sky that surrounds the earth and how massive it is and how huge it feels, and then I just think about the fact that the entire earth is just a speck of dust inside this massive universe and that you created it all. When I think about the fact that you call every single star in the universe by a name, and, I, and I'll bet you it's a better name than what the scientists call them. When I think about the fact that you know every human being and you know your people so intimately, you know the hairs on our heads, you know our hearts, you know our circumstances, Lord, I just can't take your greatness in and we want to say together to you that we love you, we praise you, we bow our hearts before you, we celebrate your greatness. And Lord, as great is your greatness, so great is your graciousness. And tonight we're going to hear a little bit about that. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to grow tonight in understanding the measure of the grace of God in Christ and for how you will speak into our hearts, for how you will work in our lives, for how you will bear fruit in us and through us. Tonight and in the coming days, Lord, I give you my thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Seasons of suffering are seasons of opportunity. When we suffer, and especially when we intensely suffer, we have the opportunity to grow in faith. By which I mean, we have the opportunity to grow in actually believing the gospel. And in actually trusting in Jesus day by day, circumstance by circumstance. And I'm not saying that for those of us who are believers that we did not believe before. But what I am saying is that our faith deepens. Our faith becomes more real. Our faith gains more content when we see God at work in the midst of very difficult circumstances. When we suffer, and especially when we intensely suffer, we have the opportunity to rightly order our priorities as we see what's really important in life and what's actually not that important in life. We have our, an ability and an opportunity to get things right with God and to get things right with others. We have an opportunity to see not only specific sins, but perhaps sinful patterns in our lives and bring those before the cross and find forgiveness and grace from the Lord and find power from him to repent and to live in a different way. When we're suffering, and especially when we're intensely suffering, we have an opportunity to be more uh, deeply bonded with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we learn what it means in practical life to bear our burdens together. We have the opportunity to learn to serve in the power of the Spirit because our own strength is just sapped. We have nothing to give, and so this is an opportunity. Seasons of suffering are seasons of opportunity, but they are also almost always seasons of temptation as well. When we suffer, and especially when we intensely suffer, we are usually tempted, for example, to distance ourselves from God and others, or to strike out against God and others, or to indulge our flesh as a way of medicating the pain. Sometimes we just want the pain to go away. 
was thinking of a very close friend of mine who came to know Christ some years ago. She was a lifetime drug addict. I was actually a drug addict friend with her mother, and her mother taught her that way of life, and Stephanie did drugs all her life from the time she was a little kid, all her life, and a few years ago, she came to faith in Christ. She got sober, and I remember just about a year ago, her, her reaching out to some of us that love her, and just she was just saying, I just want the pain to go away, and I want to go back and do drugs so bad, I'm not going to do it, but please pray for me. And I, I think sometimes we just feel like that, don't we? When we're in the midst of intense pain, sometimes we just want it to go away, and so we indulge our flesh because somehow we think that's going to help. But the, the problem with that is that when we sin in response to our suffering, all we do is make our suffering worse. All we do is actually complicate our entire situation. John Bunyan was a pastor and an author in the 17th century. I love reading his books because whenever I read his books, one of my favorite English words is there all over the place. It's methinks. I just like the word methinks, and I wouldn't mind bringing methinks back. I really like methinks that I like the word methinks quite a bit. But he's a very wise man. I love his writings. I just love reading the things that he had to say. And near the end of his life, he gave this counsel to his flock about the relationship between sinning and suffering. He wrote, nothing can render affliction so unbearable as the load of sin. If you would, therefore, be equipped to deal with your afflictions, be sure to get the burden of your sins laid aside, and then whatever afflictions you may meet with will be very easy for you. Now that is probably an overstatement, but I want to encourage you, as I've been encouraging my own heart, not to reject his counsel, but to seriously take it to heart and think about what he's saying. A few weeks ago, I had read this quote many years ago, but a few weeks ago I was thinking about it, and so I looked it up, and when I I first read his words, they felt a little stingy in my heart, and I kind of wanted to just say, no, that's way overstated, but then the Lord kindly said to me, don't, not so fast. Take a little bit of time to take in what he's saying because there's a lot there to what he's saying. I mean, on the one hand, I think about Jesus in the garden before he was about to suffer the cross. And I think about a man that was perfect in every single sense of that word, so burdened by the weight of what he had to bear that he sweat drops of blood. That does not sound easy to me. And yet, it was Jesus Christ who lovingly said to his people, including all of us gathered here tonight and those of you watching on our YouTube channel. Here's what Jesus himself said. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. There's that word, easy, and my burden is light. So when I think about our brother John Bunyan's words in light of Jesus' words, I just want to encourage us to to take to heart what he's saying, to take some time to think about what he's saying. Here's another quote that I particularly benefited from in the last few weeks. John said, If we heartily renounce the pleasures of this world, we would be very little troubled for our afflictions. That which renders our afflicted state so unbearable to many is because they are too much addicted to the pleasures of this life, and so they cannot endure that which makes a separation between them and those pleasures. And again, we could pick this apart. We could think of all kinds of exceptions to what he's saying, and some of that would be legitimate. But I want to just encourage you to take to heart what he's saying and really think about it. There is an important relationship between suffering and sinning that we need to think about. And we need to think about how we actually add to the burden of our suffering when we could be uh, going before the Lord to get healing in our times of suffering. As I've thought about the things that John Bunyan said, I have thought to myself often that if our relationship with Jesus was pure and unadulterated by sin, If our fellowship, our daily fellowship with Jesus was perfect and had no relational distancing, if you will, if there was no spiritual distance between us and our source of life, I think we would be astonished by how light the burdens of this life feel. I'm not saying the whole burden would go away. I'm not saying we would never cry a tear. Jesus himself shed tears. I'm not saying that it would be instantly easy. That's the one word I think in John Bunyan's quotes that I've struggled with the most. But I am saying I think we'd be astonished what would happen if the weight went on the right shoulders. I really do. And so I want to encourage you to join me in thinking about what our brother John Bunyan has to say about this. Last week, 
We talked about the relationship between suffering and singing. In other words, we talked about the importance of establishing the pillar of praise, especially when we're suffering. It's so important to, as a first order of things, prioritize giving thanks to God and singing praise to God, even when our hearts don't want to do that. It's no magic pill. It doesn't uh, automatically solve everything. And of course, other things have to follow after praise. But beloved, this discipline of praise empowered by the grace of God in Christ is so crucial because it puts our eyes on the right place. It puts our eyes on the Lord. It puts our eyes on the solution. It puts our eyes on the source of life and of healing. It puts our eyes where they ought to be. So we have to begin there. But this week I want to talk with you about the relationship between suffering and sinning because as I've said, I think sadly our instinct when we suffer is not so much to sing but to sin. And I think most of us who are believers, we probably do a little bit of a combo deal. We probably seek the Lord and we sin against the Lord. But I just feel in my own heart that the more intense the fire of suffering gets, the more my heart is just, I just kind of want to withdraw from the Lord. I just, for some reason, in my sick and still somewhat sinful heart, I just somehow think the solution will be to draw away from God when that's actually adding to the problem. So we have to talk about this. Beloved, when we add sin to our suffering, we actually increase our pain And we actually decrease the sense of hope, joy, and peace that we have before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to talk with you tonight about 1 Peter 4, a little bit about what he had to say. And then just to let you know about somewhere in the middle of the message, we're going to go over to Psalm 38 and spend a little time there because it's a great example of how David's sin related to his suffering And then after that, I want to commend to you a five-step path forward if you're at a place in your life where you have realized or if you soon realize that you have added sin to your suffering and you're not quite sure what to do. So let's start with 1 Peter 4. One of the primary themes of 1 Peter as a letter is suffering for the sake of righteousness. In other words, suffering when you don't deserve to suffer. Suffer suffering when you're simply serving God and you don't have any immediate practical reason to be um, suffering in consequence of that. Peter's heart in the whole letter was to speak into the lives of his brothers and sisters in Christ, including us, as they and we face the practical consequences of living for the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that's hostile toward God. It's not easy, is it? And so here in chapter 4, he picks up this theme and he advances this theme and he urges us to fix our eyes on Jesus and think about Jesus' way of life so that we will respond to our suffering by faith rather than by the flesh. That's what he's up to, I think, in chapter 4. He begins the chapter then by reminding us that Jesus suffered in the flesh. And you already know this, but I just want to draw out, I think, two things that that means. I think he has Jesus' life in his mind, and he has Jesus' death in his mind. So during the days of Jesus' life, he lived a perfectly righteous life. He's the only human being who always did what pleased God the Father in his way of thinking. I mean, just think about that. He never thought a single thought that was displeasing to the Father. Who else could say that? Jesus lived perfectly in his affections, in his feelings. He never had a single feeling that was displeasing to the Father. All of his feelings were pleasing to God the Father. All of his words were pleasing to God the Father. All of his actions were pleasing to God the Father. And for that, he suffered greatly. For that, the people in this world who are filled with the flesh and despise the things of the Spirit, they attacked him, they maligned him. They opposed him. They plotted against him. They did everything they could to slow him down, to stop him. He suffered for the sake of righteousness. Jesus suffered when he did not deserve to suffer at all. No matter what we're suffering through, you could always make some kind of argument that at some level we deserve whatever we're getting, but you could not make that argument for Jesus. There is nothing he ever did in heaven or on earth to deserve a single ounce or second of suffering, and yet he suffered greatly for the sake of righteousness. And then when his life came to an end, some of those who opposed him, as you well know, they plotted against him, they arrested him, they tried him, they convicted him, they crucified him on a cross. He, he, he died a horrific death. He suffered for the sake of righteousness. He knows what it means to suffer in the flesh. He was a a man familiar with sorrow. He was a man familiar with suffering. 
And don't think that just because he bore his burden to the Father and with the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit that the burden was not heavy on him at times. He knew what it meant to suffer in this world, beloved. He was a man who suffered in the flesh. Unbeknownst to those who took his life, though, Jesus Christ came to this earth to die that death on the cross. Jesus Christ came to this earth to make the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, even for those who put him to death. Jesus Christ, even in suffering in the flesh, was doing the will of his Father all the way to death on the cross, and then, of course, all the way uh, to, to life beyond the cross. As Peter said in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Jesus suffered in the flesh, beloved, for the forgiveness of our sins for a few reasons. So that, first of all, we would put our faith in him. He didn't die for nothing. He died so that we would believe in him. Second of all, he suffered in the flesh so that we would be united with God. Even the Pharisees who thought they were united with God were greatly divided from God. Jesus died to reunite them with God. But third thing... And this really gets to the heart of why we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 tonight. He died on that cross to disunite us from our way of sin. He, to disunite us from our former passions. He, he died on the cross to unite us with God and to disunite us from sin. We need to hear both sides of this. If you don't hear both sides of this, you have not truly heard the gospel. Repent and believe, right? The repent part means disunite from your way of sin. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what he's interested in working in our lives. And I do put it that way. It's his work inside of us. We have no power in ourselves to disunite ourselves from sin. I don't know if you've tried to do that. I've tried to do that. It doesn't work so well. But Jesus Christ has all the power to reconcile us to God and to disunite us from our sin, both things. With this redeeming sacrifice in mind then, Peter told us, to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And I think what he means by that is he wants us to think as Christ thought and also live as Christ lived. Because if you look there in the beginning of the chapter, he, he said something that's pretty strong. He said, and he's now talking about believers, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh by faith in Christ has ceased to live by for the flesh by the grace of Christ. Now, I don't think Peter is saying that for the person who genuinely puts their faith in Jesus that they will never sin again. Because even in Peter's case, we know for a fact that he struggled with things to the end of his life, right? Peter was not a perfect person until he saw Jesus face to face. So I don't think he's saying if you put your faith in Jesus, you'll automatically be sinless. But I do think he's saying something like this in the words of Wayne Grudem, that the person who puts their faith in Jesus has made a clean break with sin as a way of life and as an identity. So not saying we'll never commit a sin again. I actually have a friend who's a pastor who thinks he doesn't sin at all anymore because he has faith in Christ, but I try to tell him all the time, you're one of the more prideful guys that I know. <laughs> and I love you. I really love this guy. His name is Joe. I mean it. We're friends. I love the man. But he's not a sinless man. Who of us is, right? But I can tell you one thing. When we put our faith in Jesus, we make a clean break with sin. And it's not just theoretical. Jesus is trying now to teach us a new way of life. New identity, new way of life. We put our faith in Jesus, here is us. Once we were lost, but now we are found by the grace of Jesus. And now we're learning to live as found people by the grace of Jesus. Once we were sinners in our identity. And now we are saints, we are holy ones in our identity. This is what the Lord says about us, by the grace of Jesus. And now we're learning to live as saints by the grace of Jesus, not by our own power, but by his grace. The one who has entered into the suffering of Jesus by believing in Jesus has made a clean break with sin as a way of life by clinging to Jesus. The way to disunite from your sin is to put the pillar of praise first. If you will unite yourself with God, you will gain the power you need to disunite from sin. Do you remember Hezekiah from last week? What did he do first? First, he established the worship of the Lord. Then, he abolished idolatry in the land. Oh, that order is so important, beloved. 
Don't start by destroying your idols. Start by clinging to your God by faith in Jesus Christ. Then comes the desire. Then comes the power to destroy what must be destroyed. We gain eternal life by clinging to Jesus. We make a clean break with sin by clinging to Jesus. We get the privilege of learning what it means to live for the will of God rather than living for human passions. For Here's what Peter said. If you'll look with me, please, at verse 3. Peter said, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. The time that has passed is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And what do they want to do? They want to live in sensuality. They want to live for their passions, whatever those fleshly passions are. And by the way, you could even think of a a business person that's maybe not out of control with kind of the things we think about uh, that that are typical of fleshly people, but a guy who's living to do nothing but make money and gain power, he's just as filled with fleshly passions as anybody else. Even if he looks clean, he's not clean, or she's not clean. They live in drunkenness, they live in orgies, they live in drinking parties, or God only knows what else we're all doing these days besides just drinking. They live in lawless idolatry. In other words, people who are outside of Christ live in constant rebellion to God. And Peter's just saying, look, the time you already spent doing that is enough. It's enough. Our brother is just trying to reason with us. In a way, here's what he's trying to say. What did you really get out of living for the flesh anyway? What did you get out of it? For my sake, I spent years living for the flesh. And at the end of the day, all I got was emotional, spiritual bankruptcy. That's all I got. I got hopelessness so bad, I wanted to commit suicide. I sat on a curb one night with a gun in my hand. I did not have the guts to pull the trigger, but you have no idea how badly I wanted to pull that trigger. Later, when I got sober and was talking to my mom about my way of life, she said to me that I, like others she knew, was basically committing suicide on the installment plan because I didn't have the guts to just get it over with. And by the way, I praise God that he kept me that night from pulling the trigger. I praise God for that. But all I'm telling you is maybe not everybody gets to that point of hopelessness, but that's the end of the flesh. It seems beautiful for a while, but at the end of the day, it surrounds us with an ugliness from which we cannot escape. It seems like it's helpful for a while, but at the end of the day, it leaves us with no help at all. It seems satisfying for a season, but then it ends up leaving with a, us with a hunger that simply cannot be satisfied. The things of the flesh, beloved, are not profitable. And Peter is saying, look, the time that has passed is enough. It's enough. Let the stuff go. You have come to know Jesus Christ. Let this stuff go. It's not going to help. You're united with God disunite from your former way of life by faith in Jesus, by faith in him. Peter, beloved, is trying to help us put our suffering into perspective. He's trying to help us see things as perhaps God would see them so that we will respond to it in faith rather than in the flesh. And this is why he says in verse 7, if you look there, he says to us, the end of all things is at hand. Now, in our day, we're in a place where we can understand that better than maybe we could have understood that four months ago. You think about what this little, little invisible thing called COVID-19, whatever that really is, think about what that did to the world in a heartbeat. Think about that. Revelation 18 says the day is coming when God is going to bring this world to an end in an hour. It will be over so fast we will be in shock. It will come to its knees in a moment. If this world is going nowhere, why would we live for this world? It's simple logic. The end of all things is at hand. So Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And in the beginning of this chapter, he told us how to be sober-minded. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes upon him. He's the one that's going to give you proper perspective. You think that the things of the world are giving you clear sight. You think that the things of the world are giving you joy, but you're being deceived by yourself and by the world. Look to Jesus Christ. This is what will give you a sober mind. The world is coming to an end, but Jesus Christ and his kingdom will never end. So why should we not, by faith in him, live for his kingdom and for his glory? When we suffer by faith in Christ, Peter tells us then that we shouldn't necessarily rejoice in the suffering itself, but we should rejoice in Christ because through our suffering, God is still working in us. When you come to live by faith in Christ, not even your suffering can ultimately work against you. 
I think people without the Lord have no idea what that kind of logic is about. That seems totally insane to them. How can you think that something uh, that's intensely painful for me could actually be good for me? Well, here's how. I don't get all the mystery of it. All I know is that God is at work in us through all things to accomplish his purposes in our hearts and in our lives. And what his ultimate purpose is in us is to conform us into the image of Jesus. And so through our suffering, the junk in our lives is being brought out. The dross in our lives is being brought to the surface so that it can be moved away, so that we can be purified, so that we can be united to Christ. We rejoice while we suffer, not necessarily because of the source of our suffering, but because our God is at work in our suffering. We are being prepared by our Father to be more united with Christ so that we'll be more fruitful so that in the end we'll gain even more eternal joy. Even as believers, when we hear logic like that in the flesh, it seems ridiculous to us. But if you will seek the Lord, if you will seek the help of the Holy Spirit, you will understand that that right there is the way of life. Suffer by faith in Christ and you will find a way to rejoice because you will know that God is at work in you. To suffer by faith, beloved, is pleasing to God, Peter says. Because to suffer by faith is a demonstrative of a heart that is toward God, that is submitted to God, that wants God in all seasons of life. Of course, by the grace of God working in us, of course, but it's demonstrative of a heart that is toward him. And so he urges us, if you look down to verse 15 now, he urges us then not to be the source of our own suffering. It's like, look, some suffering is intended by God, so... Rejoice when that happens, but don't suffer because you're a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. We could add a hundred other things to that. What I hear Peter saying is don't become the source of your own suffering. And if you're already suffering, don't add sin to your suffering because it's just going to make things worse. Look at the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Follow the Lord. Believe in the Lord. Believe what he's done for you in Christ, not just in uniting you with God, but in disuniting you with your former way of life. And beloved, even when we sink into sin and we allow ourselves to suffer all the more because we're rebelling against Jesus, even then, our Father simply loves us too much to let us continue in that way. He just does. We've seen so many times in John, I've tried to argue as carefully as I can from the scripture that once you are born again, you cannot be unborn. Once you come into the family of God, you're not getting kicked out of the family. But that doesn't mean you're free to just live in any way you want to live. What it means is that you're now free to live for the will of your Father. And when we, especially in seasons of suffering, begin to cope with our suffering by living outside the will of our Father, at some point, our Father's going to come along and say, that's enough of that. Because I love you. I love you too much to let you go in this way. And I think this is the heart of what Peter means when he says judgment is going to begin at the household of God. That might sound like a a harsh thing to say, but I actually hear that as a very hopeful thing. I hear Peter saying, our God is going to purify his bride, period. And personally, I take that as amazingly good news. Because I've heard Ethan say before, if if his salvation depended on him, he would be lost. And me too. If my sinlessness depended on me, forget about it, right? I'm done. I'm done. But thank God. Thank God for his grace in Jesus Christ that will not let us go. And that will teach us the joy of walking in the will and ways of our Father. Judgment will begin at the household of God so that we will be more rightly fitted to do the work that he has for us in this world. Peter then says, finally in verse 19, that when we learn to suffer in this way, We learn to suffer by faith rather than by flesh. He says, listen, here's what you do. Entrust your own souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And all I hear our brother saying is suffer by faith. Don't think as much about your suffering as you think about your God. Don't fixate on your circumstances as much as you fixate on your Savior. And trust me, I know that sometimes that is intensely difficult. I know that sometimes that actually feels impossible. Sometimes it feels like our hearts are just so numb, so deep with pain that we just don't even know how to progress. But just hear the voice of your Father. This is his will, that you would learn to suffer by faith. And he will do this in you, precious one. Now, this chapter, as I said in the beginning, is primarily about suffering for the sake of righteousness. And it's not about suffering in other ways. But I do think we can apply the wisdom of Peter to other kinds of suffering. 
I do think we can apply the wisdom of Peter to the times when we suffer just because we live in a fallen world and uh, disease happens and death happens and, and accidents and things like that happen. I think we can apply his wisdom to that. I think we can apply his wisdom to the times when we suffer because of the sins of others, a sin that has caused us to have to bear the, the consequences of it. I think we can apply his wisdom to when Satan is at work and wreaking havoc and causing us to have to deal with things that we'd rather not have to deal with. It doesn't really matter what the source of our suffering is, beloved. We would do well to hear and heed the wisdom of our brother. And I'm praying tonight, and as I've been praying all week long, that we would have a heart to do just that. Beloved, do not add sin to your suffering. It will not help. It will not help. When we add sin to our suffering, we just complicate our suffering. Sometimes we severely complicate it. We only actually increase our pain. We only actually decrease our sense of hope, joy, and peace in Christ. So with that, I want to take a little time to talk with you about King David because he suffered a lot in his life, and I praise God that he actually wrote a lot about his suffering, and not just about things in general. I was kind of surprised the other day to hear Pastor Kevin told me that 60-some-odd percent of the Psalms are lament Psalms, over 60%. Think about that. And the Bible encourages us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is actually encouraging us to lament uh, by faith. And I'm grateful that David wrote about these things. Psalm 38 is one of the best examples I know of where we see the relationship between suffering and sinning. So if you'll please turn there with me now. I don't want to necessarily work from verse 1 all the way to the end, but I, I kind of want to show you the themes in the, in the psalm and show you, I think, what our brother King David here is trying to say to us. And I pray that through this, God will minister into our lives. So when you get there, these will be up on the screen here too if you're not there in time. But I think the first thing that we need to see is in verse 12 and then in verses 19 through 20 because it's not until that point of the psalm where David actually talks about the original source of his suffering. So something happened to David. He was suffering pretty intensely. Then he added sin to his suffering. These verses highlight for us what actually originally happened. And here's what David wrote. David wrote, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. And then down in verse 19, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me, and then notice this word, wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after God. So I really want us to understand that originally, David was suffering for the sake of righteousness. He wasn't suffering because of his sin originally. Originally, David was serving the purposes of God through the nation of Israel, and people were opposing him intensely. They probably, at this time, were literally trying to take his life. And you know, we're so far removed from him and his circumstances, but imagine what it would be like where every single day and night of your life you know people could surround the building you're in at any time and try to kill you. That would be really stressful. There was a time when my brother, 10 years older than me, he passed away in 2008, somewhere around there. But when we were younger, he got into it with this other sort of gang of kids in the Los Angeles area, and he messed with the wrong people because they would not stop harassing us. In fact, one night they came and completely surrounded our house with bats and guns and all kinds of stuff. I was like nine years old. I was scared out of my mind. And the police came, and it was, it was all a big thing. But I just think, man, what would it be like day by day by day by day by day for who knows how long when you know people are out to plot you and kill you, and they absolutely mean business. David was suffering, beloved, and he was suffering for the sake of righteousness. But unfortunately, we then see in verses 3 through 6 and 18 that he added sin to his suffering. He responded to his suffering by sinning. And he greatly complicated his situation. Here's what he wrote. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. And he's speaking to God. There is no health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Not my suffering, but my iniquities. Not my circumstances. My iniquities. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. He was now responsible for this. 
I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. I confess my iniquity, he says. I, I am sorry for my sin, O Lord. It is possible that David's talking about his sin in general here, but I think he is much more specifically talking about sin that he committed in response to his suffering, and now he's talking about the effects of that suffering, the, the effects of his sin upon his suffering. And sadly, because he responded to his suffering in this way, his situation became so much more complex that he's walking around day by day doing nothing but mourning. Have you ever been in a place like that in your life where things are just so heavy, even if you want to have joy, you just can't find a way to have joy? He was just walking around, if you could see it visibly, like with a thick, dark, black cloud just following him everywhere. He could not escape from it. And he said it was because of his sin. His suffering was enough to mourn, beloved. He needed to mourn his suffering before God. It was sad. It was sad that this man who had risen up for the good of the nation was trying to be killed by people for whom he was working. It was sad, and yet instead of mourning that, he added sin to his suffering, so all he could think about was his sin. This was his situation. This was how much more complicated it got. Things were just so confused that his sin overshadowed his rightful pain. So instead of writing a psalm that was just about his suffering and his need for deliverance, David had to write a psalm about his sin and his suffering, both things. David had to write a psalm that intermixed confession and pleas for grace with supplication and pleas for deliverance. And for this reason, David begins the psalm by pleading with the Lord not to rebuke him in anger and wrath and by confessing that his sin had caused the hand of God to come down so heavily upon him. The sin had caused, his sin had caused him to sink into a place of deep depression and self-loathing. That's the first 10 verses of this psalm. And then as if all that wasn't enough, David said in verse 11 that those who were closest to him were keeping their distance from him at the time when he needed them the most. David's companions, his family, his friends, his close associates in the kingdom they were drawing away from him when he needed them so badly. But I think, and that in itself is painful enough, but I actually think contemplating the psalm that what was causing David the most pain about that is I think David knew that somehow his sin was responsible for that. I think he knew that part of the strong hand of God against him is that God caused people to draw away from him when he needed them the most. This was a deep and bitter pain that David was experiencing. So having confessed his sin, having described the consequences of his sin, David then pled for mercy with the Lord. We begin in verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. And now if you'll look at verse 21 at the end of the psalm. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I think in the end, that as depressed as David felt, he actually still did feel hope in God. When he went to the Lord, I think the Lord ministered to him in some measure so that he began to feel hope in God. I think he knew that somehow or other God would accomplish his purposes in his life. But for our purpose tonight, I think what we really need to see is how much his sin complicated his suffering. And every time we sin, we do the exact same thing. David's sin in response to his suffering significantly increased his pain and it significantly decreased his peace and joy and hope in the Lord. Now because the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he didn't give up on David and praise be to God for that. When David realized his sin and confessed it, the Lord heard and answered. He forgave his sin. He worked in David's life. He delivered him, he fulfilled his purposes in David's life. You might ask me from Psalm 38 how I know that, and I don't know from the words of Psalm 38. It's just this is a time when it's really good to know the story of the Bible because you know where his life went, right? He died an imperfect man who was at peace in God. He died an imperfect man whose purpose, who, who, who's in whose life God had fulfilled his purposes. So I know that God was gracious to him. God, David called out and confessed, and the Lord answered Beloved, in David's life, his season of suffering was a season of temptation, but guess what it became? It became a season of grace, and for this, we give praise and thanks to God. And when we, like David, 
add sin to our suffering. And sadly, we almost always do that when we suffer. When we see what we've done and how it's increased our pain, when we name our sin and confess it to the Lord and plead for mercy, I can say to you confidently confidently, that our Heavenly Father hears our prayers and answers our prayers and forgives our sins in Christ, cleanses our sins in Christ. Our sin is serious. Our sin greatly complicates our suffering. But you want to hear the gospel? Maybe in a fresh way. Our sin does not have the final word in our suffering. Amen? Hallelujah to that. Even when we complicate our own suffering, uh, the end of the story has not been told. When we confess our sins to God, he forgives. I say this confidently because this is what the word of God says. Not my feelings, not my thoughts, but the very words of God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, it is not good to add sin to our suffering. But when we see that, when we contemplate it, when we confess our sin to God as sin, he hears and answers from heaven and forgives our sins in Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, you will not bear the consequences of your sin forever because Jesus took that upon himself. Seasons of Suffering are seasons of opportunity, they are seasons of temptation, and they also are seasons of grace when we look to God in Christ, and that makes them a a very beautiful thing. And so with that, not an easy thing, maybe not something we would directly pray for or want, but they are beautiful things. I was telling somebody the other day, as I've thought back on my life with Christ, I've been walking with him since 1986, so 34 years or whatever, When I look at my growth chart before the Lord, spiritually speaking, the times I've suffered are the times when I've grown the most. They were the hardest times and the best times at the end of the day. I don't get how the mystery of all that works. I don't understand it. I don't care to even have to try to explain it. I just know that it's true. I know that seasons of suffering are seasons of opportunity. They're seasons of temptation. They're seasons of tremendous, amazing grace. I think they are the seasons in which I have truly understood and grasped the gospel more than any other season. And so, if you're at a place in your life tonight where you realize that you have added sin to your suffering, or maybe soon after this message you'll realize that you have done that, I want to commend to you a five-step process, a, a path forward for you. Because what I find is that when I sin in response to my suffering, things become so convoluted, and sometimes... Uh, spiritually and emotionally, I become so confused that I just don't know how to go forward. As I was praying about this earlier today, I thought about it like about a year and a half ago, Kim and I had to go help clean someone's house out. They were massive hoarders. So like when we went down into the basement area, literally the, the junk was four feet off the floor just of junk, and it was our job to have to clean it up. And it was amazing. It took us a month to get this house clean. And I thought when we add sin to suffering, it kind of feels and looks like that inside of our hearts sometimes. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with grief, and then we realize we've sinned. And even when we receive the grace of God in Christ, we're just not sure what to do. So I just want to commend to you five steps. Maybe you'd take them right in order. Maybe one or two would help you more than others. But one way or the other, I want to ask you to seriously consider what I want to share with you now. So step one, I want to start where I was last week. Step one is pray and ask God to help you discern your situation, discern your suffering, and discern your sin. Or if I can put that in another way, we must begin by establishing the pillar of praise in our lives. Unless we put God first in our lives, there's simply no way forward. Because the only one that can truly ferret out the confusion, the fog between our sin and our suffering is the Lord. There's simply not another way for it to happen. So we must begin with praise. And when you're in a place in your mind where you're so hurt by your pain and you're so confused by your sin, sometimes it's very hard to do that, but I want to just ask you to trust the word of God and give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord and sing the praises of God. Just start there. Start there. And pray and ask God to help you with the following steps. Step two. I want to encourage you to write down the original source of your suffering and to explain why it was so hard for you and those around you. If your particular suffering wouldn't have been so hard for others, well, that doesn't really matter much at this point because it's your suffering, and if it was hard for you, it's hard for you. 
So for example, Kim and I have been through a, a ton of things. I don't even know where to begin. It took us two and a half hours the other night to explain about half of what we're facing to the fetters at their house at dinner the other night. I don't even know some of it where to begin by really helping you understand the burden. But one thing that's really clear is my dear sister died on February 19th of this year, and I watched her take her last breath. And she was like soul to soul close to me. I love her so deeply. So one thing I have been doing, I wrote down what caused my suffering? Well, the death of my sister. And then I just bullet pointed. This is why this was so hard for me. Because it's connected to this and it's connected to that and it's connected. And I just found that the more I tried to get clarity about my original source of suffering and why it was hard, I just began to feel freer in my heart. Like at least I understand why the pain is so fierce. It's not for nothing that I'm in pain. So go back to your original suffering and just think about how did I get in this mess in the first place? What happened? What happened? Then the next step, step three, write down the specific ways that you have sinned in response to your suffering and explain the consequences of your action. Or if I could put it another way, just explain how your sin has, has complicated your whole entire situation. And I think that as you do that, as you try to get as specific as possible about what you did, I want to encourage you to think about why you did it. Why did you go to those particular sins? Why did you want to do this particular thing and not that particular thing? What was it about your heart that was drawn to responding to pain in that way? I found that to be a very helpful question because I found that that got me beyond just the particular acts of sin and got me more to the root of what is still sick about this heart and needs to be healed. What drove me to cope in that way? What drove me to, to express anger in that way? Why did I sin in that way? And I think this cannot, sometimes it's not fun. Sometimes it can be scary to really expose the heart before God. But just remember, you're doing this in the presence of a Savior who loves you with an everlasting love. And his whole aim is to heal your heart, is to heal your soul. I'm telling you, one of the reasons grace becomes so real in suffering is because our hearts are exposed in, like in no other season. So just try to expose as much as you can. Here's what I did. Here's how it complicated things. Here's how I think, here's why I think I chose these particular things. Number four, having articulated your sins to the best of your ability by the grace of God, confess them to God as sin. And all I'm saying is don't say this was a mistake. Don't say it to the Lord or to your own heart or to others. I was just stressed. I didn't mean to act like that. Just call it what it is. Just call it sin. Maybe there are reasons. Maybe God has compassion. But look, sin is sin. Let's just call it what it is because then we can deal with it before the Lord. Jesus died to eradicate our sins. Amen? So it's okay if we just call sin, sin. You will not help your heart by minimizing what you've done. Just confess it to God as sin. And as you confess it, then comes the time to believe the gospel and receive the grace of God in Christ. These are his words. He's promised you that when you confess your sin, here's what he's going to do. A few examples. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because their sins will be taken away. God's words, not mine. Romans 8. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God did that and he will accomplish it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, the one who began a good work in us will what? He will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus, right? Our Father will not give up on us, beloved. Receive the gospel when you confess your sin. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and if you're already saved, you will be washed anew. You will be cleansed anew. You will be empowered anew to disunite from your sins. If you say you have no sin, if I say I have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, as we confess, let us receive the gospel. The Lord's done away with our sin. Sometimes I've found he leaves some of the consequences in our lives of our sin just so that we won't forget. I find that a grace. There are things from all my years of drug addiction that I struggle with every single day of my life, just mentally and health-wise, and I thank God for that. I really do, because I can't not possibly forget where I've come from, because I've got to deal with these thorns in the flesh. But that's, that's an act of grace. As far as the long-term eternal consequences of our sin, it's done away with. So when you see what you've done and you confess it, believe in Jesus Christ. 
and receive the forgiveness and the peace that belongs to you in him. This leads us to step five. It's a little harder to explain this step quickly, and I'm actually going to take this up again next week because more needs to be said. But let me just sort of summarize then, I think, where this puts us. Step five. Having articulated our suffering and our sin before the Lord, having received the cleansing grace of God in Christ anew, we're now in a place where we can prayerfully discern our path forward with the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're now in a place where some of the fog's been blown away, and we can say, now, Lord, what would you have me do? And what would you have me let go of and and stop trying to do? Some of us, by the way, when we're sinning, when we're suffering, we sin by trying to take the bull by the horns and solving our own problems. And that too is a sin because we stop trusting in the Lord. And so it's good when the fog has been cleared away to say, Lord, what have I been trying to do that you would really like me to stop trying to do? Where have I been trying to be God where I need to stop trying to be God? Please help me see, Lord. What would you have me do? What would you have me stop doing? What would you have me feel? What would you have me say? Pray about the path forward. We'll talk about this next week again, but I don't think this step is quite so simple because the path forward for you might not be the same as the path forward for me. But I hope that you can see that if you articulate your suffering before the Lord, articulate your sin before the Lord, you confess it, receive his forgiveness, that you're just in a place where you can see more clearly and actually deal with your suffering. You can actually begin to go to the root of why you're in the situation in the first place and bring your heart there. So with that, one more quick quote from John Bunyan, and then I want to pray for us. John Bunyan said that in times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of God's love. I love that phrase. He suffered a lot, Pastor John Bunyan, and he knew what he was talking about. And all I want to say to you now is what could possibly be sweeter than experiencing the grace of God in Christ and then also being led by the wisdom of God in Christ. What could be sweeter than that? And I want to encourage you, if you have suffered and then sinned, to listen to the word of the Lord tonight and bring your sin to God. Let him wash you with grace. Let him lead you by his wisdom. Let me pray now that God will help us with these things. Our God and Father, I love you for who you are. I love you for the greatness of your greatness, and I love you for the greatness of your grace. And I pray, Father, now that this feeble word has come out of my heart and it's been given to others, I pray that you would work in their lives even as you've been working in my life. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us the joy of seeing our sin even though it's hard, that you would teach us the joy of confessing our sin to you even though it's hard. I pray that you would teach us the great joy of receiving the grace of God in Christ. Oh, Father, please be at work in our lives so that we will be more useful to you, so that we will be more glorifying to you, so that we will be more of a blessing to others, and so that we can find the healing in the depths of our souls that we also need. And for how you will work in us tonight and in the coming days, we give you our thanks and praise in the name of Jesus Christ.